Welcome back, everyone. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, Procter & Gamble, Ally Financial, and Netflix all reported their quarterly results. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down all three of these companies, and we'll go through how these companies are really doing and if the stocks are worth buying now. And we have some news last week that I wanted to highlight. The Nikola founder, Trevor Milton, was convicted of securities fraud. I'm going to highlight what I think is the most ridiculous thing the defense team said. So I'll be looking at that as well. Now, of course, we have a lot of news to jump into, but I first want to do a portfolio update. If you're one of the newer viewers to the channel, welcome. We do this every episode. I'm transparent about where I put my money, what I invest in, and I show you exactly what I'm doing. This portfolio is called the Passive Income Portfolio. It's focused on high-quality dividend-paying companies that I call compounders. Now, I have this whole compounder checklist. It's based off of a lot of real data, research, and studies, as well as some input from, I think, brilliant investors like Terry Smith. To really summarize, I think the best quality compounding companies in the market. And the whole purpose of this type of investing is to outperform over long periods of time. That's the goal with a passive income portfolio, to have incredibly good long-term performance as I'm generating consistently growing passive income. Now, over the past year, this portfolio is down 14.52%. All right, well, that's a bummer. We're down big over the year. We can compare that against the S&P 500. That's down 18.45%. It's down 17% if you factor in dividends being reinvested. So at least we're doing a little bit better than the S&P 500, but this still isn't optimal. We're down $50,000 over the past year. And at first glance, it looks like no progress is being made here. It looks like things have completely stalled with the portfolio. For example, if we look at my value over time, I started this portfolio back in 2017 Unfortunately, during this booming time in the stock market, I had very little capital to work with because I just poured my life savings into my house. I put $150,000 into a down payment on a home, and that didn't leave me with a lot of money left over for investments. But I continued to dollar cost average into the market with a small amount of money, continually putting more in every single month growing it from 20000 to 30000 to 40000 When starting off the portfolio, my contributions made a large impact. So this portfolio grew like clockwork every single month. On top of that, from 2018 to 2019, the stock market basically just went up. There's incredibly low amounts of volatility. The only time that things actually dipped was in 2020 for just a couple of months. And then we were back off to the races the stock market taking off, my portfolio went 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50, 60, 70, 80, up to $90,000 in the green, and then we hit 2022. Since then, the market has just been on a downward trend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All the buys that I did in 2021 have basically been in the red, almost every single one of them. In 2022, my portfolio has been volatile and jagged, going back up only for a short amount of time during these bear market rallies to quickly turn back south. And I've been stuck at this level around 350,000, 340,000, 370,000. 
I've been trading around the same level for the better part of a year. And again, at first glance, this can be frustrating. I look at this and I think that I'm not making any progress over the past year. But in reality, I think things are really playing out differently than meets the eye. I think over the past year, this time being invested, I've actually compounded my portfolio more than the previous years put together. And I want to explain my reasoning behind this. When we're investing in a market that continually goes down month after month and prices continually decline, it looks like you're just losing money. That's what it looks like on the surface when in reality, you're actually compounding at a quicker rate by buying companies, buying the actual economics underlying them for cheaper and cheaper prices and increasing your share count dramatically of great companies. I can look at a couple examples of this. Even though my portfolio has gone down over the past year along with the market, my portfolio is actually stronger this year than it was last year. And the output of the economics of my portfolio is much stronger this year. My dividends, for example, that I'm being paid this year are only 5% below last year despite not having three months entered. So I'm going to far outpace the level of dividends that I was paid last year, and that's with a lower yielding portfolio. The reason why is because I've reinvested so many dividends, and with my contributions, I've increased my share count dramatically of these companies. And during this time period of the market going down, my dividend income is actually steadily increasing. Last month, I earned $831 in dividends. This is the economic output of my portfolio. And I could track and measure buybacks and see the same things. My companies are doing more buybacks now than they've ever done in history. And despite the portfolio going down in value, every single company aside from just Disney, that's the only exception, every other company in my portfolio is paying record amounts of annualized dividends. They're putting more economic output into my portfolio than they've ever done before. If I look at individual performance of my companies, they're also doing exceptionally well. So far, JP Morgan reported earnings and they beat on revenue, earnings per share, and guidance. Pepsi reported earnings, they beat again on revenue, earnings per share, and they even raised guidance. Nike reported earnings, they beat on both revenue and earnings per share. They're one of the few to give weak guidance. So this is one of the only companies that so far lowered their guidance in my portfolio. Overall, most of them are doing really well, and I'm excited about the future of these companies. So no matter which way I look at my portfolio, in aggregate, I am compounding my gains over time. These companies are improving their fundamentals, they're growing their earnings per share, they're growing their free cash flow, they're raising their dividends, and almost all of them are doing buybacks at the same time. They're moving in the right direction, even if the market is choosing to sell out of them. And right now, the market continues to be in this bearish sentiment trading down almost every single day. We have a couple good days here and there, but overall, we're in a strong downward trend. At some point, this is going to reverse course. When that happens, when investor sentiment moves from negative to positive, I think these type of portfolios, people that have been dollar cost averaging in, I view it as a strongly coiled spring. It's going to launch into the stratosphere. If you've really compounded your share count into high quality companies at very good valuations, all you have to do is wait for that spring to bounce. The real compounding happens during down markets when you use these opportunities to buy into stocks and it's reflected during the up market when investor sentiment changes to the positive. These numbers right here, 13,000, 14,000, 
This can change dramatically and quickly. I've seen it happen before and it will happen again eventually. Now moving on, we need to jump into some earnings reports. The first one is from Procter & Gamble, the consumer staple king. This company is a $300 billion market cap company. It is a giant. It owns so many different brands. They just reported earnings, which were better than expected. The stock is up 2%. So far, this looks decent, but I don't actually love the report all that much. I think it's okay. The reasons why I'm not too excited about this is because of some key details in this report. The Cincinnati-based consumer products company on Wednesday lowered its annual revenue guidance, citing the run-up in a value of the dollar relative to other currencies around the world. So any international company is going to have that big foreign exchange headwind. Procter & Gamble is not an exception here. And they are revising their sales downwards. So this is one of the companies giving downwards revisions. Another thing I'd mention about this company is it's true that it pays a decent dividend yield. It's at 3% right now, but the payout ratio is also very high at 60%. So if you're looking at this company as a dividend grower, they're not going to be growing their dividend as fast as other companies. For example, the past year they grew at 4.97%. 5% is okay, but not even as fast as the rest of the market. Over the past two years, they grew at 7%. And it's just the unfortunate situation Procter & Gamble's in with their already very high payout ratio. They simply cannot grow their dividend much faster than their free cash flow. And in terms of their financial ratios, the ROCE, the return on capital employed of Procter & Gamble, is okay, but not amazing. 21% is in the range of Costco. And if I'm looking at two different companies to buy, I'd rather own Costco than Procter & Gamble. So for me, the biggest problem with Procter & Gamble is I view the company as already so mature that the upside is very limited, the growth is slow, it can play a role in a portfolio as a very defensive, conservative company that can be somewhat of an anchor during highly volatile times, but I think there's ones that are also very defensive in nature that simply have more growth ahead of them. So I'm going to be focusing on other companies over this one. Next up, we have Ally Financial, another very popular dividend-paying company And it's down big today. It's down 7.7% because of reporting worse than expected Q3 results. They missed on both their revenue and their earnings per share, and they gave pretty weak guidance. Now, this is a company that I haven't owned, and I've outlined the reasons that I don't own it. I don't like the exposure this bank has to different industries. I don't like the exposure to the mortgage industry, and I don't like the exposure to the auto industry all their used car loans. I think they're both risky endeavors to be exposed to. And that's the big problem that Ally Financial is facing. The company at the surface level, when you look at the financials, it looks pretty decent. They have a high starting dividend yield with a low payout ratio. They've been growing their dividend rapidly over the past five years, but the stock has just been crushed. It's down 41% year to date, another 7% just today. And if we take a bigger look here, if we zoom out 10 years, Ally Financial has only returned 11% in stock price in the past 10 years. The entire decade, it's 11% in the green. Not good performance from this company over a long period of time. And I think this is the problem with diving into these financial companies and not being aware of what they're exposed to. It's incredibly important to know what you're buying when you buy a bank. With Ally Financial, you're exposed to a lot of stuff that again, I think is very risky. The biggest problem with this earnings is they say a credit loss provision and impairment charge. 
Ally Financial reported a drop in third quarter earnings as a company provisioned more for credit losses and booked an impairment charge related to its mortgage business. So they're doing the thing that most banks are doing, which is saying that we're going to have rough times ahead, especially if we go into a recession. That's a major risk. So we need to take on some extra capital in reserves in preparation for different loan losses. But Ally Financial is already taking impairment charges for their mortgage business, meaning they're already meaning they're already taking on some hits with this exposure. And again, I think this will continue. I don't think we're going to see any big improvement in car prices. I think they went up way too high, too fast. Consumers were way too excited, overspending on vehicles, and I think prices will continue to crash down. Another thing that I thought was a red flag for this company was just a day before this earnings report, the finance chief stepped out of the company right before their third quarter report. Now, if I see executives ditching the company one day before they release an earnings report, I don't consider that a good sign at all. So this is something where right off the bat going into this earnings, I thought that there might be trouble. And of course, the earnings report wasn't good. Now, next up, we have Netflix, which is always a fun stock to talk about because it's so incredibly volatile. It's up 14% just today after its most recent reports, where it beat investors' expectations. Now, Netflix is a company, a stock that many people are trying to debate whether or not it's essentially dead. The company has gone down so much in value over the past year. Investors have given up on the once incredible growth story of Netflix. And now they're just trying to prove that, hey, we're still alive and streaming can be a profitable business. That is basically what Netflix is trying to say. With a lot of things in this report, Netflix came out swinging. They said, first of all, we have good content. All the people saying that Netflix doesn't make any good content. We have the Jeffrey Dahmer series, one of the most popular ones we've ever created. Stranger Things 4, Extraordinary Attorney Wu, The Gray Man, Purple Hearts. We have content that a lot of people enjoy watching. The next thing they did was prove with the actual data that people do enjoy their content and it's evidenced by the amount of engagement the company has. Netflix has over double the engagement of any streaming competitor, even factoring in Disney plus Hulu plus Hulu Live. All of them together, Netflix still has 1.4 times the level of engagement. So Netflix, right at the start of this earnings report, right at the beginning of it, is taking shots at their competitors, saying, look, people like watching our stuff for longer and more engaged than your stuff. And then the other thing that Netflix did that was surprising to me is they doubled down on the bingeable release schedule. They like binging, and they're sticking with binging, even though every other streaming service likes to string out their releases one episode per week. Disney Plus, for example, loves the one episode per week. They release one She-Hulk per week, one Mandalorian per week, one Andor per week, one whatever their series is per week. Every single show they string out as much as possible. The Lord of the Rings did the same thing. One episode per week, that's how Amazon's doing it. And even HBO Max with the House of Dragon is doing the same thing. One episode per week. But Netflix is saying no. We like our bingeable release model and we think it helps drive substantial engagement, especially for newer titles. They showed a Google Trends chart showing the difference between the Jeffrey Dahmer series compared to Rings of Power and House of Dragon. How interest in the series based off of Google Trends rose well above any of the level that Rings of Power had or House of Dragon. And as a consumer, I actually like this choice. I prefer the bingeable release schedule. When I get into a series that I want to watch, I want to be able to watch as much episodes as I want at once. So whether or not this is the best decision for Netflix financially, I think it's better for the consumers. I think consumers like having 
bingeable release schedule. And I actually think in many cases, the bingeable release schedule, where you drop the entire season, is overall better for both the viewer and for the company itself. I'll give the example of The Patient. This is actually a really high quality show. It has high ratings on IMDb. It has one of my favorite actors in it, which is Steve Carell, but The Patient has one problem. The episodes are very short, 20 to 30 minutes long, and they're only released once per week. So you get a tiny dose of the show once per week, which is such a slow release schedule for a show like this. And halfway through the season, I decided to just stop watching it because I'd rather just wait till it's all released and watch it all at once. In fact, reading through the user reviews of this show, it shows just how frustrated people are with the release schedule, having to wait a full week for a 20 minute episode. The top review is if you're a binge watcher, do not start. It's review after review frustrated with the weekly release. Great premise, questionable format. With each episode 20 minutes long, like other reviews, I'll leave this until all episodes are released and binge it. Some good acting, but the 20 minute episodes makes it terrible. Whoever thought this should be a weekly show should be fired. You get the point. Consumers are complaining all about the same thing, which is the release schedule of these shows. Companies like Hulu, companies like Disney, companies like HBO Max are trying to string out content as much as possible to keep people subscribed. And meanwhile, Netflix is taking a more consumer-friendly strategy of doubling down on the binge release model. And they're trying to explain to other streaming companies how this model can work. It's hard to imagine, for example, how a Korean title like Squid Game would have become a mega hit globally without the momentum that came from people being able to binge it. We believe the ability for our members to immerse themselves in a story from start to finish increases their enjoyment, but also their likelihood to tell their friends, which then means more people watch, join, and stay with Netflix. So that was a bit surprising to me. Netflix came out swinging at competitors, defending their business model, explaining why it's working, and they're also trying as best they can to prove that this is a profitable endeavor. If they can prove that streaming is a profitable and good business model, that's not only good for Netflix, that's also good for Amazon Prime Video. It's also good for HBO Max. It's also good for Disney that's moving aggressively into streaming. Netflix is the one that's closest to making real profits from it. We'll see how this turns out over the next couple of years. My prediction is that they'll make a billion dollars of free cash flow this year and over two billion next year. But again, that's just a prediction. Only time will tell. Now, moving on from those earnings release, we also have the news that happened last week. The Nikola founder, Trevor Milton, was convicted of securities fraud. What a journey this has been. I've covered this story since the very beginning. In fact, I've had Nikola as a corporation strike down one of my videos for showing footage of their bogus promotional video of their truck rolling down a hill. Uh, that was a long time ago. Things have evolved since then. What once started as a short seller report has now culminated in Trevor Milton, the previous CEO of Nikola, getting now convicted of three different charges, and he could potentially face a lot of jail time from this. They say Friday's guilty verdict caps the downfall of Mr. Milton, who founded Nikola in his basement in 2015 and took it public in 2020 at a valuation of $3.3 billion when the company hadn't sold a single truck. Imagine that. If you ever think the market is efficient, just remember that Nikola was priced at $3.3 billion by market participants when the company had sold literally nothing. Never made any revenue whatsoever, but the company, according to the market, was worth $3.3 billion. That's how efficient this market is. The stock is down substantially since its IPO. It's down 68%. It's still worth $1.34 billion, but it is steadily marching down to its fair value of $0. 
Now, finally, we get to what I think is the most absurd and comical part of this entire trial. When the defense attorney was asked about the Nikola One in motion video, the video of it going on a road looking like it was driving, but really they rolled it down a hill. This is the defense attorney's defense of that video. He says, quote, it's not a crime to use special effects in a commercial. He said of the Nikola One video, quote, otherwise the government would have to indict the Energizer Bunny. So many things wrong with this defense in this statement. First of all, they didn't use special effects. They couldn't afford to use special effects because their company makes no money. What they did was they towed the vehicle up to a hill, rolled it down, and then angled the camera so it looked like it was driving itself. And then the comparison to the Energizer Bunny just shows that they don't get it. The Energizer Bunny commercial was a commercial saying that a battery lasted for a really long time. That's the indication it gave to viewers, that the battery was really powerful and it lasted a long time, just like this funny toy Energizer Bunny that kept going. That's a commercial. There's nothing deceptive about it. People aren't misled when they're buying Energizer batteries. That's a big distinction between having a commercial of a truck that looks like it can power itself when it really can't. One of these is intentionally deceptive, the other isn't. So there you have it. The defense of Trevor Milton is the Energizer Bunny. And I'm as shocked as you are that that defense didn't work. Even despite that incredible defense, he still got convicted of three different crimes. So overall, this is coming to the conclusion of the Nicola story arc. We've been following this one again for a long period of time, well over two years since the very beginning of this company coming on the radar. The last stop I think will be sentencing, and I think that will conclude the story of Trevor Milton. So that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like this type of content, make sure to subscribe to the channel. I'll see you in the next one.